The Informed Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman and co-host Mike Rogers is a presentation of Informed Fitness Studios, a small family of personal training facilities specializing in safe, efficient, high-intensity strength training. On our bi-monthly podcast, Adam and Mike discuss the latest findings in the areas of exercise, nutrition, and recovery with leading experts and scientists. We aim to debunk the popular misconceptions and the urban myths that are so prevalent in the fields of health and fitness, and to replace those sacred cows with scientific-based, up-to-the-minute information on a variety of subjects. We'll cover exercise protocols and techniques, nutrition, sleep, recovery, the role of genetics in the response to exercise, and much more. On this episode, Why We Get Fat, with national best-selling author, Gary Taubes. In the 60s, Diet books took up this idea that carbohydrates are fattening, and if you want to lose weight, you don't eat them. So you remove the carbohydrates from your diet, you replace it with fat of all things. The infamous example of this was the Atkins diet, and what I've been doing in my books is just arguing that basically these diet book doctors got it right. Hi, welcome to the show. I have with me here co-host Michael, of course, and uh, I'm really excited to have uh, this next guest, Gary Taubes, journalist, author. He is the co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative and author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, and the tome, Good Calories, Bad Calories. He's a recipient of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research and has won numerous awards for his journalism, including the International Health Reporting Award from the Pan American Health Organization. He is the first print journalist to be a three-time winner of the National Association of Science Writers Science and Society Journalism Award. And we have with us today uh, one of our instructors, Neil Holland, and he's joining us this episode because, as I understand it, Neil, you're Gary's high-intensity training instructor for a while. So welcome to the program, man. Thanks, Adam. Gary, welcome. Uh, Nice to be here. Thank you. We're going to talk about the book that pretty much uh, summarized your your tome, Good Calories, Bad Calories. I assume you wrote uh, Why We Get Fat because, uh, well... How many people were actually getting through the whole good calories, bad calories? <laughs> well, <this laughs> and you is, wanted to get this message, this important message across. Yeah, I mean, this is, I spent five years reporting my first book, and I wanted to put in most of what I found. It's not even all of what I found. I had to leave stuff out, but you end up with a 500-page book with another 150 pages of endnotes and bibliography, and yeah, it was a difficult read. And there were some what I thought were extremely significant messages that had to be conveyed. So, you know, then I wrote Why We Get Fat. I got a lot of emails from people saying, would you please, your book changed my life. Now, would you write one that, you know, my husband could read or my doctor could read or my father could read or so I did. So that was Why We Get Fat. Yeah. And in my case, when I'm training so many people uh, and I want to get your research across to them, uh, I'm not going to hand them good calories, bad calories. No. <laughs> Definitely so I, I'm including that list of people that that really welcomes why we get fat, which is such an easy read and so on. It's it's so clear to me what's come out. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about this. But why don't you please, first of all, maybe tell us the elevator pitch, if you will, of, of why we get fat. 
Okay, the elevator pitch. So I have to preface this. Is I'm an investigative journalist who became a de facto historian doing this book, and I realized that in order to understand what we believe, you have to understand what we, why we believe it and when we decided to believe it and what we might have believed instead. So with that context, since the Second World War, we've believed that obesity is caused by eating too much. Very simple gluttony and sloth model. You take in more calories than you expend, and the excess are stored as fat. And everything we do to treat obesity is based on this premise. We tell people if you want to lose weight, you've got to eat less and exercise more. You've got to get into negative energy balance. And um, the message that came out of my research was that that's nonsense, almost nonsensical. And it's the product of some very naive thinking of physicians in the post-World War II era who just assumed that fat people got fat because they ate too much and that nothing else had to be known. And there was always this alternative hypothesis, which is that obesity is a, it's a disorder of excess fat accumulation and it's caused by a sort of dysregulation in the hormones and enzymes that determine how much fat we carry on our bodies and how much fat we store or how much fatty acids we burn as fuel. And the hormone that dominates that is this hormone insulin. And if insulin goes up, we store calories as fat. And when insulin comes down, we mobilize those calories and we use them for fuel. And we secrete insulin in response to the carbohydrates in our diet. And until the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was that carbohydrates are fattening. You know, bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, beer, sweets. If you ate them, you got fat. Women would say they go right to my hips. This prior to the 1960s, and this is, this is common knowledge. This was common knowledge. And the, in the 60s, the sort of pioneering work or, or Diet books took up this idea that carbohydrates are fattening and if you don't want to lose, if you want to lose weight, you don't eat them. So you remove the carbohydrates from your diet, you replace it with fat of all things. The sort of infamous example of this was the Atkins diet. And what I've been doing in my books is just arguing that basically these diet book doctors got it right. And the medical community got it wrong. But the problem is we've been claiming the diet book doctors were quacks for the since the early 1970s and the medical community just refused to accept what was a very simple message backed up by very profound physiology that's actually textbook medicine all right guys so so this is it the bottom line is this watch your carbs and don't be afraid of fats yeah basically it's a very simple story i mean there are complications in all these stories so don't calories count at all? So you're saying, for example, you eliminate your, your carbohydrates. I mean, this is, this is a question I get all the time. So, okay, so I can, I, I'm with you on this low-carb thing. Or I can buy that, the whole insulin response and, and what you just said, Gary. So does that mean I can eat as much fat as I want and not gain weight? I mean, is there still a limit to the calories you, you ingest? Well, Let's think of it this way. It's interesting. One of the ways that critics always attack these books is they said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, you low carb diet. So the ultimate example of a very low carb diet is a ketogenic diet, a keto. Uh, Atkins was a ketogenic diet. Now it's a huge fad. And you get rid of all the carbs you replace with fat. So the idea is when you do that, this 
medical community would say, yeah, sure, it gives you quick weight loss, you get this water loss, but that's all it does. And I, I don't think these people have any clue what people with obesity really want, how they want their bodies to work. So the way they want that, we want our bodies to work like lean people's bodies work. And lean people can eat, as, eat to satiety at every meal and not get fat. And the idea with these very low-carb diets where you replace them with fat is you're allowed to eat to satiety and eat when you're hungry and eat to satiety and not get fat. A lot of people can eat as much fat as they want and they're fine, unless some people can't. So in some sense, some people are still going to have to kind of consciously restrict how much they would like to eat if they want to get leaner, but other people don't. Other people, like the first time I ever tried Atkins is an experiment back going on 20 years ago now. I was writing my first uh, magazine investigative piece on the dietary fat dogma, and I tried Atkins as an experiment. And for me, I was then a 40-year-old man, physically active. I could eat as much food as I wanted to, and I lost weight anyway. I can explain it physiologically, but I wasn't trying to over I wasn't force feeding myself I was just eating until I was done you know I was doing what lean people do I was eating to satiety so that's kind of the argument my problem with this idea about calories is as soon as you start thinking about calories you get into this energy balance thing and you go just the wrong way to think about fat accumulation so your your fat cells don't even know they don't have no way of knowing how much you're eating and exercising your fat cells are responding to the presence, basically, of insulin in the bloodstream. If there's a lot of insulin, your fat cells take up fat. If there's not a lot of insulin, your fat cells deposit fat. And if you think about it as the calories, you're going to end up with the wrong way to think about obesity. If you think about it in terms of carbohydrates and insulin, you can solve the problem. So that's the argument I've been making. This calories in, calories out is just the wrong way to think about it. No, Gary, just uh, tying into that, there were two things uh, I, I believe you've said, uh, both in good calories, bad calories, and why we get fat that I always found uh, very compelling. And it's something I always say to my clients when explaining how this works. And I, I'd love to get uh, your input or what, what you mean by this. But two things you said, um, one was we don't get fat because we eat too much. We eat too much because we're fat. And the other thing was in terms of calories in versus calories out, you said it's like comparing a, a room talking about how a room gets crowded because more people are there. But the real question is, why are they there? So I always, I always like those two kind of metaphors and explain it to clients. And I'd love to kind of hear what you mean by that. Okay. So this is the problem with this energy balance idea, this calories in calories out thing. It's the people who talk about it will talk about it. So this is determined by the laws of physics. So what the laws of physics tell you, the first law of thermodynamics is that if somebody gets fatter, if they get heavier, they're taking in more calories than they expend. And it's, you know, to use the example Neil just used, it's like if a room gets more crowded, that room is taking in more people than are leaving. You know, if I get rich, uh, another metaphor I've been using lately is uh, wealth. If you ask me why Bill Gates got so rich, I can tell you that he took in more money than he spent, but that doesn't answer the question of why he got rich. It's just a, a condition. It's, it's saying the same thing in two different ways. It's a tautology. So if somebody got fatter, they took in more calories than they expend. And then you say, well, how do you know they took in more calories than they expended? And the person will say, well, because they got fatter. 
And so then you get back to others. That doesn't tell me how they got fatter then. It's just taking in more energy than expend is a condition that's fulfilled. It's, it's saying the same thing. Um, physicists would have called it uh, spherically senseless. It doesn't really make any sense no matter how you look at it. Um, mm -hmm. What you need is an explanation. And in the room example, like when I lecture about this and I say, let's say you wanted to know why this room was so crowded, there could be a lot of reasons for it. Um, you know, there's an interesting lecture going on. There's free food in the room. Uh, maybe there's a fire alarm went off and the fire extinguishers outside, you know, the, the, the uh, sprinkler system has gone off in every room outside and people have come into the room to hide from the wall, you know, because it's the only room that's dry. Maybe it's 95 degrees outside and this is the only room with air conditioning. There's Maybe, maybe we've got the... <laughs> yeah, it could be, you know, it's a party going on. It could be that... You know, I hired uh, the, the offensive lineman from the football team to stand at the door and pull people in. So there's a lot of explanations for why the room got crowded that have to do with the conditions inside the room and the conditions outside the room and the conditions at the barrier, at the membrane, like these big football players standing at the door like bouncers dragging people in and not letting them leave. But the fact that more people entered than left is irrelevant. You know, mm -hmm. clearly more people entered than left. The room is crowded. <laughs> you want to know why. And it's the same thing when we talk about obesity. So rather than ask why a person gets fat, you could ask, why does a fat cell get fat? This is how I like to think about it, because basically you're the, the, the integration of all your fat fat cells. And so then you ask the question, why did more fat enter the fat cell than leave it? Because if more fat enters a fat cell than leaves it, that fat cell is going to get fatter. We know that. And now you've got a very, now you've got the fat cell itself, you've got the membrane of the fat cell, and you've got the outside, you know, the equivalent of outside the room, which is the circulation and the bloodstream. And you can start asking questions, what factors have to happen to make the fat cell take up fat? And the answer is insulin has to go up. I mean, there has to be fat in the bloodstream, but there's always fat in the bloodstream, uh, triglycerides and these particles called lipoproteins or fatty acids, but insulin has to go up or the fat cell isn't going to take up fat. And if you want to get more fat out of the fat cell, insulin has to go down. And in fact, fat cells happen to be what the researchers who studied this called exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So if you've got a fat cell that's exquisitely sensitive to insulin, that means the insulin's got to be really, really, really low for the fat cell to let the fat out. And when it's really, really, really low, basically that means you're in ketosis. You're, and now you're back to the keto diet land. And now you have the rationale why the ketogenic diet works, because that's a diet that you know maximally lowers insulin and maximizes the chance that the fat cells are going to let it out. So just more calories coming in than leaving doesn't tell you anything. You know, and if I say somebody got fat because they took in more calories than they expended, they, they ate too much and they exercised too little. And eating too much is a behavior and exercising too little, sedentary behavior is a behavior. And now you've taken a physiological problem, which is somebody's getting fatter or is burdened with obesity and you've blamed it on their behavior. And there's a whole science now of neurobiology and neurology that's trying to understand what's happening in the brains of people with obesity that makes them eat too much and exercise too little because they're hoping they could explain it via some, you know, ingrained neurological mechanism that 
doesn't require them to blame the obese person for basically poor behavior for causing their own problems. They're never going to solve the problem. As long as you believe obesity is an energy balance problem, you believe it's a behavioral issue. Can we survive without carbohydrates? No, oh, yeah. I think it might have been Eric Westman in the low-carb world who said there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. There are essential fats. You need a minimum of protein. Um, this is one of these, again, the nutrition community gets this wrong. They will say we need 125 or 130 grams of carbs a day to fuel the brain because if you're eating a carb-rich diet, your brain will burn carbs for fuel and it'll burn about 120 to 130 grams a day. I don't know where that number comes from, but I'll trust it. If you're not eating carbs, your brain will work perfectly fine on ketones, on glycerol released from fat molecules when they're used for fuel. It's, the world is full of people now, especially, who don't eat carbs and seem to do exceedingly well. There are metabolic functions that utilize glucose and can't utilize a ketone. So uh, where are we getting the glucose from for certain metabolic functions? Well, you'll get glucose from the amino acids in the protein. The liver will convert it into glucose. So you'll always have enough glucose. If you're getting enough protein, you won't have enough glucose to satisfy whatever requirements the body has. Now let's talk about fruit because that's always a controversial <laughs> aspect of it also. And, and, you know, I've been told, some people said to me, if you don't eat fruit, you know, you're going to get scurvy. I mean, where are you getting your vitamin C from? Okay. Um, not, to, not to mention other phytochemicals that everyone talks about is so beneficial from fruit. Yeah. You know, this whole fruit craze this is whole fascinating. Fruit thing. <laughs> the whole fruit thing is fascinating because clearly most humans would never have eaten fruit except a few months a year max throughout even in well into the agricultural era, it wasn't like, you know, uh, uh, peasants in, in China growing rice were sitting around eating apples and berries in their spare time. Um, fruit was hard to come by and it was seasonal. I, I often think there are no clinical trials that say you're going to be healthier if you have fruit than you're not going to, you know. It's, it's, there's a lot of people who have decided that fruits and fruits go along with green vegetables, like this phrase, fruits and vegetables, you can't separate the two. And if we're going to eat vegetables, we should eat fruits. Part of what we believe about how healthy fruit is, the apple a day story and the vitamin C and orange juice were advertising campaigns by the apple industry and the orange industry. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, you can get all the necessary vitamins and minerals you need in animal products with the possible exception of vitamin C. And actually, when I was doing my research for good calories, bad calories, this is one of the areas I focused on the most because I realized doing my reading, I read a lot of the memoirs of explorers who were lost in the Arctic or stories about explorers who were died in the Arctic. And there was an interesting phenomenon that I noticed that if an explorer went to the Arctic and his ship sunk, crushed in the ice or something, and they couldn't rescue the ship's supplies, the explorer did perfectly fine living off you know, the foods of the Inuit. But if they salvaged their supplies from the ship, which often included, you know, bread and sugar, and they ate the bread and sugar, they died of scurvy. So they one is Inuit diet alone, no scurvy. Inuit diet with crackers, whatever this, you know, and sugar, scurvy. 
So I actually contacted the leading authority in the world on vitamin deficiency diseases, who was out here at the University of California at Berkeley, who'd written books on scurvy, on uh, beriberi. And we talked this over. I said, look, you know this world better than I do. Is it possible that you need more vitamin C when you're eating carbohydrates than when you're not. And it turns out that basically vitamin C competes for entry into cells with the same receptor system that glucose does. Wow. So when your blood sugar is high, you can't get vitamin C into your cells. And it's one reason why diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, a lot of the symptoms in uncontrolled diabetes look a lot like scurvy because your cells become depleted of vitamin C. Yeah. So the Brits didn't need limes. They needed to get rid of the carbohydrates. They needed, exactly. So to, scurvy is not a disease of the absence of vitamin C. It's a disease of not getting enough vitamin C when you're also getting a carb-rich diet, a diet with refined grains and sugars. And when you actually look again in the literature, it's very clear about the fact that you need more vitamin C when you're eating carbs and when you're not. And now there's this whole carnivore movement. And there are these guys walking around like Sean Baker, who, you know, if the conventional nutrition theory were right, these guys would have been dead years ago. Mm -hmm. They're doing fine. None of them have gotten scurvy yet, and yet they don't eat plant food. They live on, I don't know, maybe they're supplementing vitamin C without telling us, but I've asked them about it, and they swear they're not. Hmm. Gary, the um, you know we have a lot of uh, clients, friends, of you know family members who actually you know there's, there are people we have to convert to you know this way of thinking and your your uh, your book, uh, but there's a lot of people who actually already believe what we're you're saying and what we're we've been uh, preaching for a while, uh, but they just can't stick to a no carb diet, a low carb diet, and. I mean, all of our clients, they, they could go a week, they could go two weeks, they could go three weeks, they get the results, and then whatever, the next party, the next whatever, they fall off the, you know, off the wagon again. And do you have any, like, uh, any advice for how to get these people to, uh, like, step one, step two, step three, I guess, a behavior or whatever, to, to be more compliant to what they already know is the right way to go? You know, it's funny, because I'm, just finished a draft of my new book and the last chapters talk about this. And in fact, I have these, I interviewed a hundred plus physicians. I wish I had interviewed you guys. Um, you're going to tell us anyway. You're going to hear here first before your book's even published. This is like yeah. a script. And I, I was asking him about the challenges and it's, you know, the biggest challenge, getting people to try it and then getting them to stick with it, even when it works well, because they fall off the wagon. And one of the messages that I'm communicating, which was, uh, I forget at the moment which physician said this to me. It wasn't mine. She said the key to falling off the wagon is remembering that there's still a wagon to get back onto. Hmm. It's an interesting problem. I think you could address the issue of why their eating might not have satisfied them. You know, one of the things people don't realize is that you really do need to may have kind of a fat rich pattern of eating. You need a lot of, it's the fat that brings joy to the diets. So it's not enough to just eat a low carb diet. You have to replace those carbohydrates with fat and you kind of have to do it liberally or you end up with a very unsatisfying diet. You remove the sugar. If you don't have a lot of fat in it, there's not a lot of joy in the eating. Like, like Emerald says, fat is flavor. <laughs> fat is flavor. It's just, 
So this is why, I mean, I joke that I'm now one of these people who have convinced myself that that butter and bacon are health foods, and I hope the hell I'm right. But it's the butter and, <laughs> it's the butter and bacon that bring joy to the diet. I actually had a physicist friend at Berkeley here. Uh, I used to think he was really bright until he said to me, these diets work because people just get bored of eating bacon after a while, and they can't, they eat less. And I said, well, First of all, I'm going to challenge this idea that anyone's ever gotten bored of eating bacon. Um, you know, the rest, uh, we could do experiments, but it's sort of. <laughs> you can eat a little too much at one time, but you're not going to get bored of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the message is, you know, and then I keep, it's funny, this book, I, I was asked to write a book that was, I, I wanted to write a book that was a prescriptive book that was going to be Gary's Food Rules, like Michael Pollan did Omnivore's yeah. Dilemma and, and in defense of food, and then he wrote food rules, so I would have my good calories, bad calories, why we get fat, and then my version of food rules, and I couldn't do it. And one of the reasons I couldn't do it is because the message I keep wanting to get across is, you know, some of us just need to abstain from eating carbohydrates. And this was said back in 1825 by this Frenchman who said, why do people, you know, the, the most famous book ever written about food was a book called The Physiology of Taste, by this guy, Jean-Anthelme Briat Savaran. He says, you know, he's eaten 500 meals with people who are overweight or obese, and they always tell him how much they like the bread and potatoes, and they can't live without the rice. And if you don't want to eat, if you don't want to be fat, you can't eat them. He says, you need more or less rigid abstinence to starchy, floury, and sugary parts of the diet. And we do. Some of us just, and you got to kind of get that across to people that they're not going to find another way to lose weight. However they did, except bariatric surgery, however they do it, they're going to end up having to get rid of the carbs because it's the carbs that are making them fat. It's a simple message. It's like cigarette. If you don't want lung cancer, don't smoke. And if you don't want to be fat, like some people can smoke their whole life and not get lung cancer. Some people can eat carbs to their heart's desire and not get heavy. But those of us who get heavy can't do it. So you fall off the wagon, you get back on. For some people, it's not worth it. But I think when you learn how to eat this way and you learn how it feels to actually be healthy and to, like you said, to have your body work like a lean person's body so that you can eat to satiety and not get fat and not worry about counting your calories and walking away hungry. For many people, it, it turns out to be worth it. So let me ask you one last question before we sum this up. Why do people get so angered by advocates of the LCHF diets, the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diets? Why do you think there's so, it, it evokes so much anger? Well, first of all, oh, yeah, I think about this all the time. Um, and now I'm not going to be able to give you a thoughtful answer. It's different from what they've been saying, for starters. So nobody likes to think they're wrong. So if you spend your whole life saying the way you lose weight is eating less or the way you lose weight is by eating a Mediterranean diet or a DASH diet or it's all about I don't know what. And then these other people come along and say, no, 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 you're wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. And nobody likes to be wrong professionally because you've built your whole persona, your credibility, who you think you are. Then you're respected in the world because of what you believe. And then these other people are coming along and saying, you don't, you're wrong. So that's part of it. And then it just, it, it really goes against virtually all of the tenets of what constitutes a healthy diet. So it's not just that we're telling people to eat fat and eat saturated fat and eat processed foods like bacon. You know, we're saying don't eat 
pulses and don't eat legumes and don't eat whole <laughs> grains and don't eat, you know, and you know, the traditional way of thinking about it, that's an eating disorder. If you're cutting out a whole food group, that's what people do when they have an eating disorder. So we're just running up against a whole world of tenets in the conventional thinking that pushes too many buttons. It's like asking people to vote for Hillary Clinton, even if you're a Democrat, you know, it's like, and you're a Republican. It's like, no matter what you think of Trump, Hillary pushes too many buttons. Right, right, right. And you end up with the wrong president. Well, I have to say, Gary, uh, I just want to say thank you uh, for, I think, from a lot of people, uh, because you, you, you are challenging these tenants. Uh, and you've done a great job, and you've got you've done a lot to to challenge those tenants. And I, I just want to thank you for that. And you've helped, you've really helped me and, and a lot of our clients. And uh, keep up the good work. I really appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you. This has been the Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman. For over 20 years, Inform Fitness has been providing clients of all ages with customized personal training designed to build strength fast. Visit informfitness.com for testimonials, blogs, and videos on the three pillars, exercise, nutrition, and recovery.